You're listening to The Boss, Business of Surgery Series, Episode 101. Today, I talk with Ryan O'Hara. He is sharing his lessons of what he learned when he was a Chief Revenue Officer. He shares what we can do as physicians to increase our revenue. And trust me, this is important whether you're employed or in private practice. And if you want to hear the 12 habits that you might be doing at work to hold you back, head to bosssurgery.com and find the How Surgeon Rise article and increase your effectiveness at work now. Welcome surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Welcome back. I've had the most fun talking with Ryan O'Hara, my next guest. We have been just really laughing a lot about all this, surprisingly laughing about finance. Uh, so Ryan O'Hara, he's the Vice President of Revenue Cycle Management uh, Consulting at Eclara. Uh, so he has told me not to tell you all the amazing things that he does with millions of dollars in reduction and millions of dollars in, in cash improvement and things like that. So just trust me when I say this guy knows what he's talking about. So Ryan, welcome to the, the Boss Business the Surgery Series podcast. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Oh, thanks for having me, Amy. Like, it is funny, like we were just sitting here cracking up about, you know, the misery almost of healthcare and revenue cycle. Quick background, 20 years or so in, in revenue cycle operations. A lot of that, probably 12 years of that on the health system or hospital or provider side. And the other eight years are more of the third party currently consulting side of things. But yeah, just I'm empowered by just the idea of let's get results for people. Let's do good work and let's demystify some of the, the cloudiness that is revenue cycle management. Yes. And I think the biggest problem that we have in a lot of the positions that we're in is that there's so many layers between us and some of the administration that we a lot of times don't understand what the jobs are behind the scenes and how they help us. So take us through a little bit about what you would do as a chief revenue officer. What are some of the things that you look for, um, for example? So I've, I've done some turnarounds. I've also done some like quick sprint stuff. And one of the first things I, I, I really am looking for is data. Like the old analogy of in, in the in the absence of a target, every arrow hits its mark or misses. The first thing I try to look for is just performance data. How are we really doing? Like one of the things I talk about is cash should be an outcome, not a goal, right? If you go into any place and you start to even look at how they calculate their cash goal, it's gross revenue minus contractuals, right? Which should be in every, in any instance or an aggregate instance should be what you get paid on anything. I charged a hundred, my contractual is 50. I should have got $50. Here's how healthcare does this is they say, here's how we're going to calculate that revenue. It's going to be gross revenue minus contractuals, minus bad debt, minus charity, minus denials, minus administrative write-offs. And now all we really need to collect is 42 cents instead of 50 cents on this you know, thing. So Data is key, right? You got to understand where we're leaking, where we're leaking money at. Uh, we talked about that a little bit earlier, right? Is like the ability to then quantify how payers behaving, where we're leaking money, where our own processes are getting in our own way. So I think I, I do think it starts with putting some rigor, some targets, some key performance indicators into place, and then I think you can start to move on to the things like, okay, what's my talent pool look like? How are we administratively set up? Where are we having people spin their wheels versus actually 
use energy to get outcomes, right? There's a, 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 if I'm old, but like Fred, I always say Fred Flintstone, right? When he gets in his car, his feet move like this for like three seconds and the car moves. And sometimes (laughs) I just think we have people that do this and they do it for eight hours a day and the car never goes anywhere. It's like, wow, you're working. You really are burning a lot of calories, but I can't tell that you did anything today. Yeah. And I really liked what you were talking about before about what you look for, because we as doctors, we know how hard we're working. We're doing all this and doing all that. And this is many people's positions tell us this, but we're not really listening. And what it is, is that the only way that people know that we're doing work is by what we document in the record. So take me through a little bit about what you've seen in documentation and what you recommend. Yeah. So I always say that CFOs think that my number one job is cash flow. And I think my number one job is record integrity. We know how hard physicians work. At least I hope my contemporaries know how hard docs work. I know how hard they work. I can see them on the floor. I can see them being asked to go see 23 patients today or whatever it is. Right. But I think it's the integrity of that documentation is so important. It's not just, oh, I went in and I documented. It's I went in and I documented well. And I think there's a perception that documenting well takes more time and it might in the near term, right? Until it becomes hardwired and you just get better at it like any of us do with practice of anything. And I think it's, it is incumbent upon us and informatics and things like that to, to make documentation as easy as it possibly could be while never shying away from telling a physician peer that like, yeah, documentation is part of your job. I, I get it. You hate it. You don't like it. You never thought you'd have to, th- this was going to be the job, but it is. Hey, I never thought that like revenue cycle was going to be sitting here arguing with doctors about documentation, but here I am doing it, right? I think there's just this, this perception that like when we're asking physicians to document well, that we're trying to get more money. And that is not the case. Like, I, I don't think most of my colleagues in the industry think that we're querying you to get more money. We're querying you to get accurate record so that we don't need to bother you later when we're going to go on the offensive with insurance companies who've decided not to pay us. Or we do absolutely need to get reimbursed what we expect to get reimbursed. And that's not upcoding. That's not upcharging. That is to say, if you perform this and and the coder is ambiguous about what you're doing here, then they're going to query you and say like, I have to have black and white to code. And that is that is the mandate of a coder, right? They can't interpret. They have to code based on the clear evidence and the clear record, right? I would also argue that being a great documenter saves you time down, down the road, right? So maybe it in the near term is more of an investment, more of a learning curve. And we as revenue cycle professionals should help with that. But if I'm not querying you on, on five cases, two days later, well, that's five queries you don't have to answer either. We're delaying the work when we say query, right? It delays our ability to claim out the door. It delays our ability to cash in the door. And I would argue it delays or or illustrates at least that either you as the physician or we as the institution are not the kind of quality institution that we think we are because the documentation doesn't support what in fact the complexity and acuity of what you actually did perform. And I, my hope would be that's how physicians look at me and my contemporaries is I'm just trying to make you a better doctor. Like I, not with a scalpel in your hand, but when you're at your monitor and you're dictating or whatever. And I know a lot of the records do look at the amount that we document to determine the complexity of the patient. And that actually does determine some of the reimbursement that we get. 
is to accurately display because that's the only way that someone knows they're, they're not looking with our eyes they're looking on paper and if we adequately document what we did and who we did it on which is these highly complex patients that yeah. it's, it's much easier to to predict that i really loved what you said uh before is this idea of, like the whole idea of record integrity is to create this system where it just kind of hums along. Like you're not doing money grabs. You're not chasing money. You're not doing any of these things. You're creating this record integrity to where you're not chasing money. Money is just flowing in because you've documented it well. And you're also getting a predictable cash flow, which I could tell you if you're employed, you don't see these flows as much, but in private practice, it could be very nerve wracking, have one month high, one month low, and trying to figure out what the difference is. But if you have this system in place of record integrity, you're not doing any of those things that are really unnecessary yeah. wasting time, like you said. Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be this this retrospective component of it, right? But like a term I use sometimes that'll probably resonate with you as a good doctor is evidence-based revenue cycle, right? No different than evidence-based medicine, right? You don't wait until a person like dies and then decide oh, hey, let me go back and try to do these other things. You're following the evidence. You're following this hat. I know because there's thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of instances where a patient is presented with these kind of things. And we know that we follow this. And if this doesn't happen, then we do that, right? So revenue cycle can be the same way, but here's what we do. We wait until the payer doesn't pay us. And then we decide, oh, let's go back and fight that. And then like, we just do it in perpetuity. Like we never actually go back and fix the problem. And I think this is part of that physician revenue cycle dynamic that has to be fixed is we need to start illustrating the root causes instead of being so gun shy to approach a physician and say like, hey, we, we didn't get the outcome we wanted here. Let's go work together to try to make sure this doesn't happen in the future, right? We wait until it doesn't pay 45 days later or so. And then we come back and we're like, oh, now we got to fight this thing when a lot of times like we could have caught it in, in the pre-adjudication phase, which is that bill hold phase or that three to five days that we build in between when a patient discharges and when we actually drop a bill, which is meant conceptually, which is such an implied inefficiency, right? It's meant conceptually to say, let us get all the things that we didn't get together so that we can then then drop a bill. So yeah, I just think if we think of cash as an outcome instead of that silly goal that I talked about earlier. And we just start thinking about how do we try to make sure that we do everything in the moment that we can, knowing that insurance companies are going to be insurance companies from time to time. But at least if I put an airtight six-inch concrete cinder wall around this record, it's almost like, come on, come on, insurance company, let's play. You want to fight me on this? Good luck. Because I know I've met every burden of proof that you have. And then they start to say, let's not mess with this place. Let's go mess with another place that doesn't have their revenue cycle shop together or their record integrity together. So I just think of it in terms more of like, if you just take care of the record, if you just get the documentation right, if you just have a nice tight capsule of any continuum of care, then I don't ever have to bother you again as it relates to this particular instance of care that you delivered. Yeah, I think like some of the top things that I've seen when it comes to like the um, record integrity is the timing of finishing the note too, because I know it's so easy to get behind. And you know, there's a lot of people saying my employer is being so mean because they're saying I have to have notes within 48 hours, things like that. What is your take on that limitation of the time and, and things like that? How does that help? How does that help you all? 
and I, and I can certainly I can I can empathize with the perspective of a physician on here as as well because I do know that documentation requirements haven't gotten less they've only gotten more and I think that's just, this is the rise of the EMR age right it, it's it's almost like and the amount of data that even in revenue cycle that we have to provide to reporting agencies and stuff now has you know probably twenty x so you like you've gotten away from paper which I think is certainly more efficient, but it also means you now have access to all this other stuff that you can say has to be captured or other stuff that you say has to be captured and reported. And so as we see more patients, as we have to document more, I would say that these requirements of we need you to document on a patient within 48 hours is about a few things. It First and foremost, is about record integrity, right? If, if, if you come back and document on a case you did 30 days ago, I'm, I'm willing to stand pretty firm on my pulpit and say, it's not going to be as good as what you remembered in the day or the hours or the two days after you actually performed that procedure or were attending on that patient or whatever, et cetera, et cetera, right? So record integrity first. Secondly, I, I'm not dropping that claim until 30 days if you don't answer me until 30 days. So let's just say we were supposed to get reimbursed Ten thousand dollars, and you know, you and I talked about private practice, right? I don't, if you're, it was a private practice, you wouldn't be waiting thirty days and waiting thirty days on your ten thousand dollars. And I understand that that sounds like a revenue cycle guy talking about money, but I, I do. I patients first, clinician second. I'm somewhere way off of Mount Rushmore in the top four, but I, my job is to provide the financial means so that we can continue to practice medicine and take care of our community. And I take that very seriously. And so when I'm asking you to do that, I'm not trying to be a pain in your butt. I promise. It's more about I want record integrity so that I can win any appeals that come. And I want to get the money in sooner rather than later. Now, my contemporaries in the industry got to do a better job of explaining that. I think here's what we like to do. We do the same thing with insurance companies, right? We could just complain about it. We point out, hey, insurance companies, they're the worst, right? And there's some truth to that. But there's a lot of windows in hospitals and not very many mirrors, it would seem, in revenue cycle. It seems like we like to point at everything else as a problem and never like look in the mirror and say, what can I do differently? Like I would say, you should be doing something different with insurance companies. Like I get it, they're paid in the butt, but there is common ground and I've found it before. Same thing with doctors. Like we like to say like, oh, this doctor just doesn't do anything. All right, next claim. Same doctor. Oh, this doctor just like do something about it. Like explain to people where most of us are good human beings who just want to do great work and who would like to get paid for doing great work, right? So I would say it's a bit of shame on both sides, right? When a relationship fails, it's usually two people, right? And that means I got to do a better job of explaining to doctors why I'm setting this requirement that might just seem arbitrary and stupid because I haven't done a good job of explaining it. And I think when you do that, then physicians understand like, most of them, like there's still probably the three to 5% that like just want to complain, like everyone in society and revenue cycle is probably no different. But most reasonable human beings, the most reasonable physicians in my experience are like, oh, okay, I get it. And then it becomes incumbent upon me to be like, here, let's try to fix the root cause. Let me work. Like, what are some of the things you're running into as you're like, let's get informatics involved. Let's figure out, is there, is there something that's just eight clicks that could be one, right? I, and I think we've got to do that too, but neither party should be sitting back and just pointing fingers at the other and complaining. It, it leads us nowhere. 
And I think it's so surprising that so many doctors do not realize that the path to reimbursement does not happen when you do the work. The path to reimbursement starts when you document it and someone presses that button to submit it. <laughs> I mentioned that we do this revenue cycle 101 and I used to do this for new doctors and stuff. And, and right, it's this idea that I think a lot of physicians, they, they believe this and it's why wouldn't you? Because healthcare is the only industry that acts this way. But like when we charge $20,000 for something, we're not getting paid $20,000. Yes. And depending on who the payer is, it might be anywhere from zero to something like $18,000. And if it's government, which is most people's payer mix, it's probably less than 5000 on that $20,000 charge, which is the stupidity of it all, right? Like it's all just just silly. Like when you buy a loaf of bread, you don't pull out your grocery insurance and then pay something different than $2 for that loaf of bread. Like, well, I have really good grocery insurance. Hey, this bread's on us, right? It's, it's <laughs> a, I don't have any insurance. Well, it's going to be $2 for this bread for you. Like, or it's like, you bought a lot of bread this year. You've met your bread deductible. You don't, this bread's free for like, it's not how any industry, other industry works, which what makes healthcare kind of stupid, I guess. I kind of, yeah, but, well, the charges, but, it's, it's, but it's complicated. Yeah. You had mentioned that, that one thing that you heard was that some doctors think that we charge Medicare a certain amount for a gallbladder and we charge a you know different amount for different people. But it, you mentioned that it's the same charge that they kind of throw a number out there and hope for the best. It, it is. And right. The reason the dirty secret, like the reason that, that facilities and systems Trump up charges is they're trying to get more out of their commercial business, right? It's fixed. Like if I charge 20,000 for something uh, other than the regional inflator, right? So, and let's say Medicare is going to pay me $5,000. They're paying 5,000 no matter what. Like I could charge, there might be a hospital that charges 40,000 for the exact same thing. They're getting 5,000 because that's how Medicare works. It's like we, now it's different in New York than it is in like rural Tennessee. Like in New York, they might get 8,000 and in rural Tennessee, you might get 4,600 or something, but it's, it's the same basic scale. Right. I asked that like, of, of like new doctors or people in healthcare, like when I do revenue cycle 101, it's like, how many people in this room think we charge differently depending on the payer? And I mean, invariably hands go up and thank, thank God for their honesty. Right. Like, I think that's great that they're willing to be vulnerable and honest and say that. And it's like, the truth is like, no, man, we charge the same, but Blue Cross may pay me eighteen hundred or eighteen thousand on this, and Medicaid might pay me eighteen hundred, and it's and those aren't even those aren't even that fake of numbers. It could be it could be that wide of a swath, and that's probably fairly reasonable when you talk about your worst government payer to your best commercial payer. Right, and those charges are interesting because a lot of these people are seeing that they charge this amount. I was overhearing two patients talking about how I went to my orthopedic doctor and they charge $600. <laughs> I was like, your doctor is not seeing that. I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like if that's an inpatient, like, a, like an in-office visit, my guess is they're getting less than a hundred for that thing. Exactly. Probably getting something like 60 to 80 bucks. It's interesting because it puts with the patients a perception of what we're actually getting, which is, which it just, it's confusing. It's magical math. But yeah, I think it leads to, I've never quite understood how, let, let's say me as a customer or a patient, right? I go in and I get something done and I end up saying like, oh my gosh, I have to pay like $800 for this. And the charges might've been 8,000 just as, as, a, as an instance. It never fails to amaze me that 
beneficiaries, customers, patients, right? They're all the same person in this in this beneficiary to an insurance company, patient or customer to, to us as providers, like looks at it as like, how, how dare this hospital try to get $800 from me? I'm like, all we're trying to get is the contracted rate that you signed with your insurance company that, that you pay $800 a month, by the way, in premiums to, and that we're the bad, like you came in feeling bad. We made you feel better. And we're the bad guy. Like your insurance company takes that much from you every month in premiums. Like, <laughs> like why are we the bad guys here? Like put the lens on them for a second and realize why am I paying $800 in monthly premiums for something that probably pays out $2,000 this whole year if I'm good and healthy, right? Yes, so many people don't even understand that simple concept that we are contracted to the insurance company to these are the CPT codes we will do. This is ICD-10 codes that match that and this is how much you're getting. And we sign that contract. We have to honor that, which includes collecting co-pays. We are obligated to collect those. Exactly. And Just then, like you signed a contract with your insurance company, yes. we both have the same signed contract, and yet we're the best. Exactly. Well, you and I have the same point, which is that the patient actually chooses their insurance company, and they are responsible for their contract. However, thinking that the hospital or the doctor is responsible for the contract that they chose and signed, which it's a complicated system, but I think people miss that point. I just like there's a line in the usual suspects movie, which I'm going way back here, but it's like the greatest heist the devil ever pulled was convincing every people to convincing other people that he didn't exist. Right. And it's like, this is like insurance companies, like the greatest like fleecing they've ever pulled is somehow convincing their beneficiaries that they're good. Like that they're, yeah. like, that they're like We're really good. The process. It's you, yeah. you in the hospital. <laughs> right. And so when they don't pay and I have to say like, I have to get, the customer to call the insurance company. It's like, Oh, I got to call them. I'm, like, I, I'm sorry. Like I need you to get involved in this. I'm trying, I'm advocating so hard on your behalf to get this yeah. paid so that you don't end up paying us 8,000 and you only end up paying 800, but it's like, yeah. And they're like, well, I can't get a hold of them. Like, of course you can. <laughs> Why would you be able to get a hold of them? Because the devil doesn't exist. <laughs> because why would they answer your call when they can just foot us with an $8,000 bill that we're not going to collect instead of <laughs> paying their portion and then you paying your $800 out of pocket? And so another thing that we were talking about, uh, a story you were telling me about uh, at Flagstaff with the recent flu um, epidemic that was there about basically simple math that we may or may not understand. So tell me about this, the simple math that we can help help understand some of our aspects of care. Yeah, it was a few years ago. So I, I think it was January of 18. We had a month where you know, we're bursting at the, at the seams census-wise. The, it was a really, really bad flu year. Um, and so we had a lot of inpatient beds being occupied by folks who had the flu. One of the, I think, things that's unique about Northern Arizona, Flagstaff, and our region is, is at any given time, almost a third, if not more than a third of our inpatients were, as a revenue cycle person, you, you look at benefits, right? So one third of the, our inpatients were tied to Indian Health Services, IHS, as a primary, secondary, or tertiary benefit. It's just something I used to measure, like, where's our population? Where's our risk? And, and I don't want to draw stereotypes, but the, the, that community that we pull from, which is the north, the northeast corner of, of Arizona, there are a lot of sick folks 
in in that community. I I, I don't think I'm making stereotypes when I say that, that 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 the Native American population as a whole just has some complications, comorbidities, and and sicknesses that outpace the general population. So if you get the flu and you've got these other comorbidities and other things that, you know, it's no different than when COVID hit, right? If you've got these other comorbidities, you're going to be far more susceptible to COVID being a real big problem for you. Flu is no different, right? So we had, we were bursting at the seams. Census full every day. We're deferring people, right? And we had a horrible financial month and people couldn't understand it. Like, wait, wait, hold, hold on. Like we were, our own people were getting the flu. Like we were running ragged. Our nurses and doctors were just running a hundred miles an hour for weeks and weeks. It seemed like we're going to print money, right? Because everyone's super busy. Beds are full. Here's the problem. There's, there's a few of them. Flu is not a very high acuity illness. Now these folks absolutely needed the kind of care that we were rendering them. Right. But a lot of it's kind of like fluid, monitoring and administration, right? They're, they're, they're dehydrated, they're throwing up, whatever it is, right? So it's a lot of fluid administration, low acuity, DRG weighted stuff. A lot of it is IHS related, not a great payer, right? Commercial, you know, I mentioned that in the scenario where commercial might pay you 18,000, Medicaid might pay you 1,800. IHS is in that, in that lower realm in just terms of how they reimburse and how they pay, right? So You've got low acuity, which means you're not creating the kind of top line revenue that you normally would. You've got a payer who doesn't pay as well that's making up an inordinately high payer mix at that particular time. And third, those beds are being occupied when normally they'd be occupied by more high acuity things, right? So let's say you might be producing a dollar of revenue. Someone with higher acuity might be producing $4 of revenue. Now, the and they might be paying you, if they're a good payer, $3 on that $4, whereas this $1 is going to pay you 12 cents, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you've got this huge discrepancy of, of reimbursement, you know, probably not even exaggerating by saying it's probably 15 to 20x, right? And then you explain that to people and they're like, oh, okay, that does make sense. But hey, thanks for running your butts around and working so hard last month. And it had nothing to do with you guys. You guys did great. We just didn't have a great financial month. And so you just, it's just explaining to them, right? That like, there's these, there's these factors that led into this, into why in a month where people were working their butts off, everyone was working their butts off that we produced really, really poor financial results. It's so crazy. Cause it's not that hard if you really sit down and think about it, but when you're busy, you think, gosh, this is going to be great. Yeah. And- you know, I've done that on the weekend too, when we, you know, take ER call and things like that. And there's some weekends I've did high acuity, really busy, running around, not getting any sleep. And then I look back and realize that many of these people didn't have insurance. I was like, I just paid to work really hard. <laughs> well, and so you bring up another thing that I, I kind of forgot was another extenuating circumstance there is, is, is the flu was hitting our own staff. And so we had nurses who were on overtime, shift diff, you know, whatever, right? So our labor skyrocketed too, right? So our internal labor skyrocketed. Our reimbursement kind of went down, right? So it's, it's all these extenuating that they pour into what ultimately becomes an income statement, right? So you can see, like, I think labor, I remember, was like up by like 1.8 million that mm-hmm. month, like over its variance, right? Had to do it. We're doing the right thing. Um, everybody's doing the right thing. It's just sometimes that's how healthcare works, right? Yeah. yeah. Sometimes the math just doesn't doesn't work. Sometimes the math just doesn't work. 
because especially now with the shortages and the travelers, which are so much more expensive. I know when I talk to um, a lot of the people in the industry, the amount of money that we're paying for travelers and these other you know locums and things like that are really a, a substantial burden on the financial system. It is. I have some theories on that. I don't know if I should I should share them, but like I almost think that healthcare created their own bed here. Like I don't. I mean, I, I've sat in executive rooms, been part of executive teams. Uh, I'll tell you, I don't think that hospitals and health systems appreciated their nurses. Mm-hmm. And so part of me is almost like, yeah, you reap what you sow. Like you, you tried to get skimpy on this for years and years and years and make margin on this for years and years and years. And like, it's coming back to bite you now. And that's what happens. I think when you think short-term instead of long-term. I think in that particular instance, the only power that we had was to unionize, which is not popular. And the second is free agency, which has become popular. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, I get it. Like, I mean, there are some decisions that I saw in my own institution. I'm like, I think this is a bad idea. Said my piece. Yeah, it's a it's a tough one because the nurses and the doctors, those are the people with the talent. And if, without appreciating the talent, they'll have to find some other way to be yeah. appreciated. Now, this goes into, I think, one of the funniest things that you said earlier, <laughs> which is your job as a, as a chief revenue officer. What is your ability in your job? <laughs> like, I... What are the outcomes that you can achieve? What is it like to be a chief revenue officer? Yeah, I think what you're referring to is when I kind of said, this is like the worst job in the world because you can never exceed expectations, right? Like as a revenue cycle professional, like you can't go to, insurance is never going to give you more than they're contractually obligated to. And in fact, they they work their butts off to not give you even that a lot of the time, Right. So the only way I could essentially exceed expectations is almost like if some insurance company miraculously decided, we love working with you guys so much, we're going to pay you more than the contracted amount, right? So it's either, hey, Ryan, go get the contracted amount against a third-party insurance company who's doing everything they possibly can to not pay you that contracted amount, or you don't, right? Which which happens a lot. And so like it's it's just... It does feel like sometimes the expectations in revenue cycle are, well, why couldn't you just give us the money that they were supposed to pay us? I'm like, you come down here and try to deal with insurance companies and keep track of the rules and regs of 200 contracts and that they're changing every day without telling you, but they tell you, keep keep it, keep looking at the provider manual because all updates will be in the provider manual. Like, I'm not looking through 200 provider manuals every week like to try to keep up. And that's, that's what they say. They say the provider manual will have all of our but they don't push anything to you. So it's, it's just this environment that's, it's hard, silly, silly, stupid, hard. Yeah. The job description of the chief revenue officer is the contracts are already in place. So the best that you can do is meet expectations. That's the best you can do. And congratulations. On every single encounter, get us paid the exact amount we're supposed to get paid. (laughs) That's tough. All right, man. (laughs) But, but I, 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 so I've, I do think like, I, I even think there's a high contingency of CFOs think this way, but I do think that like hospital executives believe that we still, you know, put an envelope on paper, lick it and send it to an insurance company. And like, then they send that like on a guy with a horse with a white bag that has a money symbol on it and they drop it off and they're like, all right, like, thanks for me. Like, I, I, it's, I do think that there's some real, that's how 
antiquated things really are and like how how could we ever not get paid what we're supposed to get paid like there's tons of variables yes our own behavior insurance behavior patient behavior whatever right like there's way more that goes into it it's i i was talking to a, a, a really good colleague of mine she's actually the VP of Revenue Cycle at Vanderbilt in, in, in Nashville. Her name's Heather Dunn. And, and we were having this debate like a year ago, of like it shouldn't, like Revenue Cycle shouldn't even report to the CFO. It's a highly complex operation. It should either be its its own job or if it's going to report up, it should report through the COO because that's all it really is. It's, it's, it's complex operations. It's not finance. Yeah. I, I really like, I mean, I think if anyone takes anything away from this is just focusing on record integrity and everything else will seem to fall in place as long as everyone is doing what they're supposed to do, which I think most people are, is if we focus on the integrity of the record, then a lot of these things will will flow from that. Yeah, and I, I, I do think my, my colleagues in the industry chase money. And I think they're almost incentivized to chase money. And I think some of that's due to just kind of how kind of unsafe it is to be a CFO and how unsafe it is to be a revenue cycle professional, right? And And the just misunderstanding of what our job really is and what we do. But if we could get out of this constant chasing our tail and trying to recoup money that we didn't get paid the first time around and really focus on how do we just keep from getting the the denial in the first place? And to me, that is record integrity. It's like, how do we take some of this infrastructure that we have, knowing full well that we're not going to be allowed to hire anybody new because that hasn't happened in 20 years or because it's just been like cut, cut, cut in revenue cycle for the last 20 years. But through other inefficiencies, could you, like, this is how I did it, is just create like a little task force. It's like three little people who just focus on account reviews, root cause kind of analysis and trying to work on how we fix those things as opposed to this constant, like, we're going to send this out and wait till we get denied and then we're going to fight it. Like, like who, who does that? Like, what kind of industry actually does that? And the answer is our industry apparently but put some time and energy into fixing the behavior and the things that caused the denial in the first place and i just i get it like i I, i'm not trying to throw stones because i think if you're a billing manager or billing director or whatever you're like tell me where i find the people to do this like i don't have enough resources to fight the denials i've currently got and you want me to take some people away from that to go try to fix root cause all that's going to happen is denials are going to and and that is true but I do think it's like a bell curve. There's a point of, of return on it if you if you focus it that way too. But it's hard. You're under you're under constant pressure. I know that role. I know the way CFOs think. You're just under constant unyielding pressure to get as much cash in the door today as you possibly can. Yeah. It's such a bad way of business, right? It, it, when you think that way, you never actually strategize. You never actually get into the point of how do I improve my operations. You're just more of like. Hope I get paid today. We'll deal with we'll deal with tomorrow. Tomorrow, like, woo, maybe we'll go have some Tennessee whiskey and deal with this again tomorrow. You're making me really appreciate my job now. <laughs> so now, tell me a little bit about your current job, and tell me about this company that you work for, this uh, Clara. So, what are the things that you do now, and how can people find you, and who should find you? So I mean, I, one of the one of the unique things about Aclara is is we're majority owned by Providence Health, right? So a non for profit health system kind of went out and ventured into this revenue cycle space and said, let's let's buy up some companies and let's kind of create, 
you know, an internal operation that we feel like might, might be best in class, you know. But what I do for Clara is, is I oversee our consulting operations. And listen, I've, like I said, I spent more of my career on the provider side than on the third party side. And I think of consultant as a absolute four letter word. I spent months with my marketing team, like, let's come up with something different. Like we had like co-pilots, navigators, like we were trying to, and, but at the end of the day, like all their research was like, yeah, the industry just knows what a consultant is and they don't know what any of these other fun things that you're coming up with are. I'm like, yeah, does that really matter? Cause I just don't like, like operators is what I, I, I call my people operators internally, but I think what, what traditional consultants do that I'm trying really, really hard to, to break here is they they just create this dependency. It's like, we're going to come in, we're going to do some stuff and it's going to, you're going to get so dependent on us that we're going to be here 10 years later and we're still going to be charging you the same amount that we, like, like to me, that's not what a consultant should do. Like a, a consultant as an operator should come in and actually teach you how to fish, you know, not just give you fish and <laughs> increase the amount you pay for that fish by 10% every year. Um, <clears throat> so like dependency that I just hate about consultants. And I, and I do think I can say that being one, having been one, and also being on a Friday, like I do, I hate it. Um, and I think my team doesn't love it either, right? Like consultants have a have earned, not been given, I think we've absolutely earned a bad moniker in the industry for being those people who just kind of gouge you. And I'm what I'm trying to do is just, again, do short-term yield improvement projects. If you like what we did, I bet we can find another one, but we've, we've hardwired this one and your team has it now and you're going to reap the benefits of this. And is there anything else we can do for you? And if we don't do a good job on that, then we shouldn't get recurring business anyways, right? So it's this idea of like happy customers takes care of everything, do good work, don't gouge people and use the word of mouth in the, in, in the industry to, to grow your business. It's the way I'm thinking, yeah, we're 10 months in here and we'll, we'll see how it, how it shakes out. Yeah. And so who should find you? Like who is the appropriate person to reach out to Clara? You know, I would certainly say this decision makers, that's typically CFOs or in some institutions, you know, where I think revenue cycle professionals have a lot more freedom of movement, which is more rare, but I think there's, there's places where, you know, Organizations have understood the complexity and understood the value of revenue cycle and have elevated that position to an appropriate one. But what I mean, anybody that honestly, like, I don't even care. Like, decision makers are the people who'd be like, let's talk business. But like, I love talking shop. I mean, you and I were talking earlier. Like, I love talking to docs. Like, I think docs are docs are fascinating to me, both in what they know and what they don't know. But like, I do. I just love talking shop with people. So if like, if you're a billing manager or something like ask for some time. I'm like, we can just talk shop, talk about your problems. And I can tell you what I've done in the past because I've probably most likely come across it in in one of my lives. Yeah. And I mean, I think it sounds like what, what you guys do is go in there, find the leaks, advise people, work on record integrity and, you know, making a huge difference that way, you know, so then you can, then you can like get closer to meeting expectations. <laughs> it could be like, so yeah, I mean, like I have, you know, 20 so projects live right now. And they, they, they vary. Some of them are short-term sprints. Some of them are interim leadership. Some of them are like clinical denials, infrastructure. Some of them are like setting up a denial. Like, so we, we do different things, but true, true enough at the end of everything, I think what we're trying to do is say like, how do we mitigate this problem? Right. And I do think that at the root of mitigating the problem is how do we get record integrity? 
if we simplify all problems down to their most common denominator, like you can almost always end up at the record. Yes. Such a great take home message. I mean, I, I think that is really critical for us to understand. And it's it's not hard to do that. It just involves, just like you said, communicating the importance of it too. So I really appreciate you coming on, Ryan. For one thing, we've had a lot of fun. <laughs> Good. I've enjoyed it. You're a blast. <laughs> this, I mean, great information here too. So I really appreciate you coming on. And any last thoughts for our, our, these docs out here? here? Here's what I would just say, like, and I, and I know that, you know, I, I'm Irish Catholic. I learn everything the hard way. My life has been just a series of lessons learned the third time instead of the first time. But I would, what I would say to doctors is like most of my most of my colleagues out here, they just want to do good work. They're they live in the same community as you. They want to do great work. They don't want to make your life miserable. And if they aren't opening the communication track, just feel free to open it up and just you know try to try to work closer with us. I, I, I know how hard, I don't, I don't know personally, but I, I know how hard your job is. Ours is not easy as well. And there's, there's, I think, humanity in the middle of that somewhere. Yeah. Oh, what a great take home point. Thanks again, Ryan. I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks so much. For more information on the Boss Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com.